0: But today, we complete our series on truth speaking, applying, living, and telling the truth. And I hope as we've gone through this, one of the things that you take away, I really hope you take away, is the power of truth. The power of truth and the fact that how we wield it matters. It's important how we wield truth. It's important we understand what it is, of course, but it's also important how we live it, how we apply it, well, speak it, apply it, live it, tell it. And I hope that you will take away from this. The truth is important and how we wield it matters. And Jesus sent His disciples out. We covered this passage thoroughly um, a couple weeks ago. But Jesus sent His disciples out telling them, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And we all understand, I mean, that's an example that He gives. And we all understand that you know, wolves are faster, stronger, and far more dangerous than sheep in every way. And Jesus told his followers, okay, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So Jesus said, the way that you are going to be a fruitful follower of Jesus in that kind of environment is to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, to apply truth with both wisdom and innocence, to be wise and harmless. At the same time. And because someone can possess truth, but not necessarily be wise or harmless. They can possess truth and be neither one of those things. And as we've gone through this, have you maybe thought a little bit about, okay, you know, I can see where I'm not necessarily being truthful in some situations in my life. Have you been thinking about truth lately? I've had a few people mention that to me. You know, I've caught myself doing some things, which is great to hear. Or maybe caught myself saying, oh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe that's not 100% true. But we've talked about speaking, applying, living, and now telling the truth. In week one, we talked about speaking the truth. And it wouldn't be unreasonable to ask the question or to think, you know, isn't speaking and telling the truth kind of the same thing? Well, they're related, but in the context, they're not exactly the same thing. Closely related. But when the Bible talks about speaking the truth, it's usually giving us instruction on how to talk to other people, like speaking the truth in love. But when we begin to look at speaking the truth versus telling the truth, when the Bible talks about telling the truth, it's more directly along the lines of not telling lies. So speaking the truth is, you know, how we use truth in interactions with each other. Telling the truth is is more along the lines of not telling lies. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment, is, ...is an example of that. And it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now we talked about that commandment briefly through this series as well. And how it sometimes gets shortened up to don't lie. Which, which is true, but it doesn't fully cover what that commandment's talking about. And we also talked about the fact that truth and lies are powerful things. Lies should be avoided and truth should be handled carefully. And we've all lied... We all know that at some form, some point in our lives, we may have slightly embellished the truth. We may have got caught up in some gossip that was a lie, jumped to conclusions, whatever. Or maybe we told a lie to avoid a difficult situation. Kids do that a lot. They'll they'll lie to think, well, if I tell a lie, I'll get out of trouble. But lies are commonplace in our culture. Um, We've all had someone lie to us, and we've recognized it. We've all lied to someone else. We tell lies all the time, and we have become so accustomed to telling lies that we, we sometimes do it even when we don't have a reason to do it. And one of the most common lies we tell is when we say something in the moment that we don't really mean. And we, just, we don't even really think about it. But for instance, if I say, oh, I'm going to start eating right, well, if we don't do that, we just told a lie. Or I'm going to start going to the gym. If we don't do that, well, we've just told a lie. And those states, you know, they're, they're, com- they're very common, and we all make them, and they seem harmless, but they're, they're still lies. And what about some biblical lies, which is, you know, where we want to go? Times when people lied in the Bible. There are times when people lied in the Bible. What happened? Well, there's Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Um, we're going to kind of concentrate on them, but we're going to talk about some other lies in the Bible first. And they'd sold some property and said, or at least implied, that they had given all of the money from the proceeds of that sale to the church. But that was a lie. You can go back and read it later if you'd like to. But they actually kept part of the proceeds back for themselves. And as a result of that, God killed them. And it sounds a bit shocking, doesn't it? You know, they just dropped dead, not because they kept part of the proceeds from the sale, but because they lied about it. And it seems like a pretty heavy consequence, doesn't it? But... I get the impression that there was, you know, as I read this and look at it and study it, there was a bit of self-glorification going on there. Like, oh, look at how much we've done, things like that. And that didn't go well for him. It never does when we think like that. But we're going to come back to Ananias and Sapphira in a minute. And there are several instances of lying in the Bible. One we've talked about many times, Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where Satan says to Eve, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. That was the beginning of lies, and hence the reason Satan is referred to as the father of lies, because he is the father of lies. Do you ever wonder, have you ever asked the question, is it ever okay to tell a lie? Because there's some things in the Bible that cause me to again step outside of my comfortable narrative and rethink what I think. Like I've always said, lies are always destructive. But am I really telling the truth when I say that? There are some lies in the Bible that seem to have a positive outcome. Um, think about the Hebrew midwives when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh told the midwives, if a Hebrew woman gives birth to a son, kill the baby. If it's a girl, let it live. And the Hebrew midwives told Pharaoh that the babies were born before they could get there, and, which is a lie. But God blessed them. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 1, um, middle of the chapter there, 15 through 21, I believe it is. And they saved the lives of many Hebrew babies because they lied. There's also the example of Rahab. Uh, she lied to save the Israelite spies. Uh, you can read about that in Joshua chapter 2. God spared her when the walls of Jericho fell. So are lies always destructive? And there seem to be some examples of lies in the Bible that God was okay with and even produced positive results. And that's often what happens when we start dealing in absolutes and drawing hard lines. There's, there's an exception that comes along that you know, kind of breaks us outside of our little box and leads us to seek what's actually true. So there are several examples of lies in the Bible. Some seem to have positive results and then there are others that are very much destructive and have terrible results, and you can make a list of many examples of lies in the Bible. And here's an interesting thought for you. You could even be saying the Bible is full of lies, and it could mean two completely different things. Two people could say they make the exact same statement, and one would be telling the truth, and the other would be telling a lie, depending on the context of what they mean. And those things require us to think. It requires to seek what's actually true. And sometimes we struggle with that. And sometimes we want to be right more than we want to know what's true. And that's kind of when things start to fall apart. That's why we see so much division in the world as people are more concerned with being right than finding out what's actually true. And that's why it's so important to use wisdom and humility in our speech to be both wise and harmless. Because it is very easy To be more concerned with being right than knowing what's true. Because when we're concerned with being right, what we're really trying to do is just protect our own comfortable narrative and stay in our own little comfort zone. With that and the fact that John tells us we can even deceive ourselves, it's easy to understand why God gave us two ears and one mouth. More listening, less talking. Sometimes, you know, something that may be true and sensationalized to grab our attention. You know, there are multiple entertainment producers masquerading as news agencies that are very adept at that. Remember, news outlets, social media, YouTube, are selling your attention to advertisers. So the more of your attention they can grab, the more they can draw you in, the more advertising dollars they can generate. So we're now left in our culture today with our tremendous access to media and all of those things, we're left with this massive job that I think was probably bigger for us than ever has been for Christians in the past, discerning things for ourselves. And more, like I say, more so than ever before throughout history. So we have to be really careful about how we handle truth, and we have to be careful about what media we consume because it's shaping who we are. And we're supposed to be wise and harmless in how we communicate. Now that doesn't mean avoid it by any means, it just means be discerning. You know, you should read, you should learn, things like that, obviously. We just need to be careful how we handle it. And that's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of responsibility. And sometimes there are things we just don't understand. And it's not always easy to say there are some things I just don't understand, and I'm going to be okay with that. But in the age of Internet, social media, 24-hour, you know, entertainment, news, we face a constant onslaught. Of information, Always. It's in our hand all the time. And some of it is genuinely false. Some of it is genuinely lies. And when we repeat it, we're telling a lie. So what Jesus said when he said, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, be wise as serpents, be harmless as doves, becomes more and more relevant each day. Wisdom, discernment, and being harmless are essential for being a fruitful follower of Jesus. Now, as we think about that, and we get into this passage in Acts chapter five, let's take another look at a biblical example of a lie and the consequences that followed. Acts chapter five. We're going to read verses one through ten. Ananias and Sapphira. It says, "Now a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. He kept back part of the proceeds." with his wife's knowledge and brought a part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to deceive the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, was it not your own? And when it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to men, but to God. On hearing these words, Ananias fell down and died. And great fear came on all those who heard these things. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this amount. She said, yes, that much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. At once she fell down at his feet and died. Upon entering, the young men found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the access that you've given us to it. I pray that you would give us discernment as we face this onslaught of information, that we would seek what's true, not to be right, but to seek what's true, that we would be wise, that we would be harmless. And as we look to your word today, I pray that you would teach us from it. And again, we're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they I guess you could say they told a partial truth. But the reality is, is that a partial truth is a whole lie. And they had manipulated what was true. And something, you know, if we're very frank about it, we're, we're all guilty of this at some point. They sold a piece of property. They gave part of the proceeds to the church, but they kept back part for themselves. Now the issue was they gave the impression that they had given all of it. Not that they didn't give all of it, but they had said they had given all of it when they hadn't. They lied, not only about what they did, but they lied about who they were and then died because of it, which seems like a really, really drastic punishment because fortunately for us, God doesn't automatically kill us when we tell a lie. But what we see here, it's almost like a New Testament picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a matter of self-glorification, becoming like God, Adam and Eve in knowledge, Ananias and Sapphira in receiving glory. Glory. They're saying, we gave all the proceeds from the sale. Aren't we great? What happened here may seem a bit harsh to us because we generally experience far more of God's grace than we do His judgment. And I'm quite, you know, happy about that. But this event, like many others in the Bible, God has given to us for a reason. And we should take the time to consider what that reason is. Why has God given us this? What does he want us to know? Why is this here? What does God want you and me to learn from it? And we learn better from stories and examples than we do from being told something directly. And that's why Jesus often taught so much in parables. That's why he used parables all the time because we learn better that way. We understand better that way. And if you've read this or heard a sermon on it, maybe it, it, it could be the case that it's been approached as God expects purity and God expects righteousness from His people, which is not untrue. But I don't necessarily think that's the only lesson being taught here. Let's look at it this way: Why did this lie matter so much to God that these people dropped dead after they told it? You know. It, It's obviously a big deal to God when someone lies. You know, is it a big deal to me? We should ask ourselves that question as well. Is it a big deal to me when I lie? In this instance, why would a lie lead to a consequence of immediate death? That's pretty harsh. There are a couple things we can learn from this. One is that God should receive the glory, not you and me. We're here to glorify God, not people. Now, a lie... Sometimes, maybe oftentimes isn't, is a means of self-glorification. We glorify ourselves when we lie. And I think, you know, as I read and study and look at this, I think that's a little bit of what's happening here. Ananias and Sapphira were telling a lie and glorifying themselves in that lie. They're saying, oh, look at all we did, but we didn't really do that. No, God forgives sin. We know that. And there's a bit of speculation here. But let's take this a little further. It could also be a matter of them saying, you know, look at how we've provided for the church. We've given ourselves completely. When the reality is, is they're only sharing part of what God had already given them. And we're going to talk about money for a little bit. And this isn't something that, you know, I talk about. Sometimes people tell me you should talk about this more. But money is very important, okay, because what we do with it is a great way of assessing where we are spiritually, How's you know, your spiritual health, your spiritual well-being? How are we doing? And the way we use our money, what we tell it to do, says a lot about that. And in this passage, people are not telling the truth. They are lying about their money. Okay? Ananias and Sapphira are telling a lie about their money. Unfortunately, we're, we're very attached to wealth. I'm very attached to wealth. When I preach this, trust me, I've been preaching it to myself all week long. And in our culture, we're very attached to wealth. We're very attached to money. We see it as status. We see it as as a lot of different things in our culture. And when we part with money, if we put money somewhere, we expect to make a return on it. If we invest it, we expect a return. I know I have some investments personally. I'm hoping that when Christine and I retire, you know, we don't want to be a burden on people. Hopefully we can retire and take care of ourselves. But when we put money somewhere, we expect a return on it, which is not wrong. That's that's not what I'm saying at all. When I invest something, I expect something more back than I put into it. And I expect something in exchange for my money. Anytime I put money out, I expect something back. You know, whether I'm at a restaurant at, uh, or being in a town center, it doesn't matter. When I put money out, I expect something for it. That's just reality. That's how we live. That's what we're used to. But what we often don't understand is that giving, you know, in a church context, is not about gaining a return on the investment. It's not about gaining a return on investment. Now, I'm going to... Um, There's kind of a, how do I say it, there's a bit of a sect in Christianity that kind of teaches that if you give, God's going to make you you wealthy, okay? If you give, he's going to make you rich, things like that. He's going to make you healthy, he's going to make you well, all that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of people who say they, they don't necessarily believe that, but sometimes our culture leads us to believe that more than we might think. But God may or may not make someone wealthy. He might, he might not. He may or may not make you healthy. Okay, health is one of those things. It's worth more than money. Often we don't realize that until it's gone. But whether God does make you healthy, whether he does give you wealth, whether he doesn't give you those things, whatever he does in your life is meant for his glory. And it's really important that we understand that. And that's what being a Christian and being generous is about, is glorifying God. Okay? It's not, about a, it's not, a, it's not a, a, an investment that we expect a return on. It's meant as a form of worship. It's to glorify God. Now, when I talk about that, that's not a great sales pitch, is it? And it's not a great sales pitch for our culture, but that's because it's not a sales pitch. I'm doing my best to tell you the truth about material giving and the way God views it. You can give everything you have, and it does not obligate God to do anything for you. It's important to understand that. Except bring himself glory through that. That's because giving is a form of worship. It's not an investment. It's a form of worship. When you give, okay, you're not investing. You're not on a return. You are worshiping. You're saying, God, you are more important to me than my money. You mean more to me than my finances. I worship you with my finances, which is one of the few ways we can actually do something that's, that's tangible, that can be an actual sacrifice for us. Now, you're saying, when you do that, you're saying, God, I trust you to provide what I need. Okay, Not my job, not myself, not my money. I worship you. And like I said, I don't talk a lot about money because in our culture, because we are so money focused, as soon as I start talking about money, people often think, oh, this guy wants to get my money. Trust me, if I wanted to get your money, there's a lot of things I could be doing that would be far more lucrative, far more lucrative. But if you're not giving part of your income as worship, you are saying, God, my finances take precedence over you. Okay? I, I, I'll give you my kids. Okay? You, can, you can have them because they're kind of a pain. You can have my family, you know, take care of them. But my money, well, I'm, I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to keep control of that. I'm going to remain in control of this part of my life, and I'm not going to trust you with it. I'm not going to worship you in that way. Now, you do what you want. Okay, I'm not. I'm not keeping tabs. I'm not keeping track. It's your business, not mine. But I just. I'm obligated to inform you of these things. Now, sometimes I get asked, "How much should I give? How much should I give?" I've heard it said many times. You know that old, the, the tithing is an Old Testament principle and not for today. And that's not completely untrue. But it's also quite likely said by people who are not doing that. Now, the Old and New Testament teach that. Everything is God's. Okay, he owns everything, we steward it. We are stewards, and we also know that Paul teaches that God loves a cheerful giver. So how much should I give? When people ask me that, what I tell them is that 10%, or tithe, 10% is a good place to start. It's a good place to start. And people say, whoa, that's so much, that's too much. There's no way I can give that up. Why not? Why not? Is God not able to take care of you if you give that much? Is he not able to do that? See, God didn't pick that particular number for no reason. Okay? Just, I, don't, I don't believe he just randomly pulled that out. Why would God say 10%? Well, I think it's because 10% is the threshold for cheerful giving. That's where it's enough that it costs us something to do it, and it becomes worship. And I also believe that 10% is the threshold for breaking money's hold on your life. Okay, we, we stress out about finances. It's part of our culture. We're always into it. We're worried about money, all these things. But if you can break that barrier, that 10%, it teaches you that you can survive on way less than you make. And God is going to take care of you. Because when we start doing that, and you know, we've, my family's been doing that for a very long time, And you learn that, okay, I can live on less than I make, and God's going to provide the things I need. He's going to provide the things I need. And when we understand that we should worship God through giving, when we know that, and and now you do, but we don't do that, we're saying, God, you know what? You're you're just inadequate, okay? I'm I'm going to control this. I'm going to keep it. I I don't feel like you can provide what I need, but this money can't. But this money can, which according to what God says is a lie. And when we do that, we're actually deceiving ourselves and saying, you know, God's inadequate to care for me. And that's one reason God loves a cheerful giver. Because a cheerful giver has figured out and understands that money doesn't control me. It's not my money that brings me joy. I'm not reliant on it for all the things I need. I trust and follow the Lord. I rely on him and he... Is my joy, which is worship, isn't it? When we say that to God through our finances, we say, God, I trust you. I believe you're great enough to provide me with what I need, and I rely on you for it. And the fact remains okay, the fact remains that when someone gives to the church, it supports the church. Okay, that's a reality. There's, you know, we've got to pay the electric bill, we've got to maintain this building, all the things, it pays for maintenance, it pays for ministries, it, it, it pays my wage, and all of that stuff is true, there is the practical side to it, and the same was true in the Old Testament, you know, the money that went to the temple, supported the temple and the priest, the, you know, the priests would often eat part of the sacrifices that were brought to the temple, but we don't give to pay the pastor, okay, we don't give to do building maintenance, we give to worship God. And tell him, God, you are most important to me. And doing that with our finances, especially in our culture, as attached as we are to money, is a very real and tangible way to say that. And it's far more about us and our mindset than it is about God. God doesn't need our money. And I don't want anyone to feel like I'm picking on you. I do my best, utmost best, to not know what people do and don't give. And this is not between you and me. This is between you and God. And this is meant for your good. Try, if you're not doing it, try giving to God and see if it doesn't change your attitude about finances. Again, to be clear, God doesn't want your money. He just doesn't want your money to get you. God doesn't want your money. He just doesn't want it to get you. Giving is telling the truth with your money. Now, all right, enough about money. I'm going to talk about one more reason to tell the truth. And it's important because if you are a saved believer, you represent God. Okay? You're an ambassador of his wherever you go. What your life looks like impacts how people perceive God. It just does. That's reality. What you say, how you say it, what you do, all impact how people perceive God. And knowing that gives us a better understanding of why telling the truth matters to God, why it's important to Him, because we represent Him. Now, of course, we don't want to get legalistic about it. That's kind of part of the problem, because that would also misrepresent misrepresent God. But you can see how speaking, applying, living, and telling the truth matter. You can see why they're so important. All of those things reveal how you and I perceive God and His holiness. And they also affect how others perceive God and His holiness. That's why Jesus says, Be wise and be harmless. Now, I have a lot of people, you know, I've had a lot of people misrepresent me. That's probably happened to everybody at some point. And misrepresent you to someone else. And and we don't like that. Okay, we don't like that. Neither does God. Neither does God. When we lie, we, we misrepresent who He is. Remember Jesus said, I am the way. I'm also the truth, and I'm the life. He says, I am the truth. And if people who represent him are not truthful, why would anyone believe he's the truth? Why would they believe he's the way? Why would they believe he is the life? You know, sometimes people reject God just because they do. They're just bent to do that and push him away and do whatever they're going to do. But sometimes people reject God because people who represent him don't handle truth well. They're given a wrong impression of who he is. Have you ever heard the, heard the joke that says God is awesome, but his PR department needs some work? Okay, well, where is PR department? We need some work. The things that make jokes funny is the little bit of truth that's in them. When someone hears that God says, I want you to be with me, I sent my son Jesus to die for you. I created you to be in relationship with me. And that's possible through my son. It's important to God that that person believes that. Because he loves them. He wants them to know and understand where they stand with him. Because he wants to save them. He wants to save you. That's important to him. God created you to be with him. And he wants everyone to know and believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the truth and the life. Now I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is Savior? He's the way. He's the truth. He's life. Have you put your trust in Him? Well, if you haven't done so, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that now. We're going to have a word of prayer. I'll ask you to stand with me for a moment, if you would. And you can pray right where you are, quietly, you can talk to God. Well, I talk and say, Lord, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I accept that gift of salvation that you offer through Him. And He will accept you through Jesus. Let's pray, Lord. Again, we're so grateful for just the time that we're able to share, whether it be here in person, whether it be online, and I look all of these people up to you. I pray that all that we would do would be truthful and that it would be done to glorify you because that's what really matters. That we'd stop worrying so much about our circumstances and worrying more about your will. And Father, I pray that we would all understand the gospel that you sent your son that He shed His blood for our sin, and that through Him we can be reconciled again to You, that when we trust Jesus, He will save us. And we can spend eternity with You. Be back to where You intend things to be. And as we think on these things, Father, I pray that You just settle them in our hearts and in our mind. We're grateful for Jesus, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen.